We've been going through the series of Romans, uh, looking at what Paul has to tell us about God's plan for salvation. We're focusing now on Jews and Gentiles, Israelites or Jews and the Gentiles. We're going to talk more about that, but follow along with me. Read, uh, you follow along as I read out loud, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You can take a seat. I'm going to try to move around. Is there anything I can do, sound guys? To There's an echo in my... Is that just in my ears? Or is there an echo here? If there's... No, we're good? Okay. All right, so... Um, a couple years ago, I read this book. Some of you may have read it, too. It's by Jim Collins. It's called From Good to Great. And Jim Collins is this well-respected, pretty popular business managerial consultant. And what he does in the book, From Good to Great, is he studies 11 different companies who, at one point, were just kind of average or good uh, comparatively in their fields. But through the course of several, several decisions they made, big kind of corporate decisions, um, they went from good to great. And as he analyzes these 11 different companies, he pulls out some business principles that are applicable, in, theoretically at least, in a variety of business contexts. So basically what these are, these are case studies. Case studies where you examine one company like Wells Fargo, you examine another company like Walmart, and you see their business practices, and you pull out as you observe what they do, you observe these groups, uh, these, these, these things that they do, you pull out some principles that are helpful for you. It's a case study. A lot of different fields, fields uh, utilize case studies. Um, the counselors do this all the time. You know, there's, here's a situation. How would you help this person? You know, what, what would you do? Um, even in seminary, there was a couple of times where they, we would present case studies, and it was like, the question was, how would you help uh, a person? How would you point this person to Christ going through X situation? Case studies, right? Today, we're going to look at case studies in this passage in Romans 9, 30 through 33. And uh, unlike good to great studying business case studies, these are case studies in salvation. Case studies in salvation. And the goal is, as we look, three different groups, all right, we're going to pull out some principles of salvation that are going to be real important for us in our lives, okay? Uh, Before we dive into the case studies, just kind of a few notes, a few kind of thoughts about these. Um, First of all, Salvation. This is an important thing to study. I'm, I'm kind of making a defense for studying salvation. You know, I think that uh, if we're honest, most of us come with other things on our minds today. That's just an assumption I'm making. Uh, maybe it's business. Maybe kind of your takeaway, I hope it's more than this, but maybe your takeaway is, oh, there's this book, Good to Great, I need to read that. Um, business, you know, how do we make more money? How to be more successful in my field? That could be on your mind. Maybe it's Hey, I'd love a case study on marriage, or I'd love a case study on family and parenting, a case study on companionship. I'm lonely. You know, these are the things that we bring to, to us, uh, with us this morning. 
Um, and that's, that's fine. That's not an indictment of you. I bring my own concerns. But I would like to make the case that I think salvation touches on every single one of these concerns. Like salvation is this umbrella thing which if we understand it, if we understand God's plan for us, for his church, it impacts how we see uh, security needs. You know, how, how do you handle money? Uh, it impacts how you view relationships. If you're lonely, understanding God's plan of salvation is deeply impactful to you. So as we study the sal- you know, case studies in salvation, understand this is a really important thing. The Bible would say, Christianity says, this is the most important thing. Salvation, understanding that you need to get right with God. You have to have a right standing before God, a right relationship before God. It's crucial. It's fundamental. Uh, so that's one thing to, to make a point is before we, we dive into case studies. Another thing to be aware of is that, uh, you know, some case studies are really long and, you know, there's books, you know, that are written on this one, you know, there could be a case study that's, that's a book long. It's huge and kind of going into all kinds of detail. This is one verse per case study. So, so this is simple, but yet the details that we're going to pull out, I think are really powerful. Um, Another thing to note, uh, we've got three different case studies. Uh, and it's verse 30, verse 31 and 2, and then verse 33. Uh, it's first, we're going to look at the Gentiles. Then we're going to look at Israel. And finally, we're going to look at Jesus Christ. Now, the first two are different than the last, obviously, right? The Gentiles and the Israelites, we're going to see they needed salvation. Jesus gave salvation. So there's kind of a different nature to the last case study, but still, as we study and we see what it says about Christ, I think that'll help us understand salvation better. Lastly, um, before we dive in, just kind of, I don't want to assume that everyone kind of has a real clear picture of, of who we're talking about. We say Gentiles, we say Israel. Who are we talking about? Like the Israel, all right? So Israel, start there. Israel, first of all, is a historic people group. Like if you were born four, you know, 4,000 years ago, you might be born into the, the, the nation of Israel, all right? You, ethnically, you could be born a Babylonian, you could be born an Israelite, you could be born an Egyptian. They were a true people group. The, his, the, the Bible gives us a true, actual history. So they're a people group. Um, not only that, though, but the Israelites had a special relationship with God, all right? Starting with Abraham, uh, God chose Abraham. And we've studied this, if you've been with us, some of this is kind of probably review as we've studied Romans, but Abraham was chosen by God and says, God said to him, I want to make you great and I want to make a great nation out of you. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's this people group that comes. And this people group did have a special relationship to God. God chose them. But here's the problem. And this is kind of where we get into our text today. The, the problem with Israel is that they misunderstood this nature of the special relationship. First of all, they thought that the relationship that they had with God was exclusive. It was only for them. At least some of them. They, they tended to get this misunderstanding that we are special, everyone else is not. All right? Israel is this national people group. The Gentiles, it's just everyone else. Everyone else who's not an Israelite. All right? So Israelites is this real small community. Gentiles is a much bigger term. It's everybody. The Israelites had this way of thinking where they were special. The Gentiles were these, you know, these, these kind of nasty people who weren't loved by God, and, and we alone, Israelites, were supposed to uh, receive this relationship with God. Now, God's plan was different from that. God's plan actually was that he would bless Israel to be a blessing, but that was a misunderstanding. Um, 
We got, do we have slides uh, up here? I've got, I've got a picture. Yeah, here we go. So this is Israel's ideal salvation. That the Israelites, they were the special people of God, right? And everyone. If you were born into the ethnic uh, group of Israel, then you were special. You de facto, you automatically were God's chosen people. All right? And there's these Gentiles out there, and yeah, they're nasty, they're disgusting, they are not loved by God. But if they work hard to become just like us, do what we do, follow our customs, talk like us, act like us, then maybe they can, you know, they understood that, that the Gentiles, if they work really hard to become like an Israelite, then they could be loved by God. All right? This is a misunderstanding. This isn't what the Bible says, but this is kind of what they thought. All right, let's go to the second slide. This is God's ideal of salvation. All right, this is actually what happened, and this is where we get into the tension of this text here. What actually happened is that more of the Gentiles, not all the Gentiles, but more of the Gentiles ended up becoming one of God's people because they were the ones who believed. God's people wasn't, it doesn't equate with an ethnic group. God's people equates with anyone who believes in the message of salvation. All right, we're going to talk more about that. And the Israelites, there, there were a few Israelites. I mean, you know, we're not, we're not, I'm not hating on Israel, right? There, there are Israelites who believe the message of salvation, and they were, were in God's chosen people group. But it's not a matter of ethnicity. It's a matter of belief. This was a, a real challenge for the Israelites, all right, in, in, in the day where Paul is writing to the Romans. They, they're really struggling with this. I thought salvation was for us. But actually only a small remnant of us, the Israelites, actually are saved. While, on the other hand, there's these Gentiles, these, you know, those disgusting people out there, they're the ones who actually get salvation. That's where we've been in Romans 9. So we're going to dive into this text. Romans 9, uh, let's start in verse 30, and I'm going to uh, read verse 30 again. And again, remember this, the, the, the goal of case studies is to see what's happening and then to pull out principles. All right, Romans uh, nine thirty. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. All right, case study number one. The Gentiles. The Gentiles, who were they? Well, we've already talked about this. Is there anyone who's not Israel, ethnically? But what, what do we know about them? All right? Now, Israel considered them kind of, you know, sin, they, they were the sinful ones. They were the, the, the ones who, were, who, who didn't follow God's law. They were the, the, the dirty, filthy, you know, outsiders. Morally outcast. That's what Israel thought. And to a certain extent, they were Right? Because the Bible tells us about these Gentiles. and In fact, in this verse, it says, what does it say about them? The one thing they did actively was that they didn't pursue righteousness, right? The one thing that they brought to the table was, yeah, I'm not interested in this righteousness. They didn't pursue righteousness. Now, righteousness morally means right standing before God, all right? Righteousness is following God's law. That's, that's moral righteousness. Forensic righteousness is a is another term we use, which means God sees them as acceptable. All right? They are cleared uh, in, in a court of law, right? Be declared innocent. And innocence is a, is a righteousness. Righteousness is all about our standing before God. How does he see us? How does he view us? How does he consider us? Are we right with him? Are we pure? Are we moral or not? Now, the Gentiles, they didn't care. 
Like this whole question of are we moral, are we right with God, they're kind of like, yeah, I'm not interested. Now, I'm, a, I'm a big football fan, Carolina Panthers in particular, and, and I've, you know, one of my tricks, the challenge is that I've got little kids, and so like little kids, it's hard to watch a full game because they're running around and everything, and so I've gotten these boys are getting a little older, so my goal, right, is to get them to like Carolina Panthers, because if they like it, then I can watch it, and gives, you know, it's selfish, but... Um, so I remember this year, I'm actually, I'm getting somewhere on this. I'm actually kind of making some traction. But previously, in the past years, I've been like, hey boys, the Carolina Panthers, don't come watch football. And they're like, TV is on awesome. And they come look at it and they, and they're like, yeah, I'm not interested. And they just kind of walk away. And they go to the, the playroom to play with their toys. I'm like, no, come on, come on. The TV is on. Look at all the bright colors. And there's Panthers and there's Falcons and there's, you know, they don't care. You know, they, they want to watch, yeah, they love TV as long as it's Jake and the Everland Pirates or Disney or something, you know, something like that. They're not interested. They just walk away. The Gentiles, they just weren't interested. They did not care about pursuing righteousness. That's who they were. Ephesians 2 actually kind of even unpacks this more. Ephesians 2 says, not only did they not care about righteousness, not only did they not care about being morally pure, but they actually actively ran the other direction. Not only did they not pursue purity, they actually pursued impurity, pursued evilness. Um, Ephesians 2 says they were spiritually dead, walking in sin. Walking in sin, spiritually dead. They're the walking dead zombies, right? Kind of this, this idea they're alive, sort of, but not really. There's something wrong with them, right? They're, in one way, yeah, they're alive, but, but internally there's something odd. That's who they were. They're following, Ephesians 2 continues, following the way of the world, corrupt, violent, selfish, following the devil, enemies to God, separated from Christ, having no hope. This is who the Gentiles were. They didn't pursue righteousness. They didn't even try. It's kind of like if you've got a teenager, you're like, you know, go, go, go study, right? do your homework. Eh, I'd rather play video games. Right? There's this push to do this one thing, you're like, yeah, I'm just not, I just don't care. That's who the Gentiles were. They didn't care. They didn't even try. And yet, verse 30, yet they attained it. They attained righteousness. They didn't care about righteousness, and yet somehow they attained it. A righteousness that is by faith, it says. Now, we'll get to the faith point in a second. But as we're studying the Gentiles, I want to really emphasize the fact that these Gentiles, these godless Gentiles who did not care about God, were running 100% the opposite direction. They were the ones who actually attained salvation. I'm reading, uh, my wife and I have been reading the story with these kids. It's, it's a Christmas story. It's by Star Mead. I'd highly recommend it. It's called Keeping Holiday. Um, and it is this story about these two kids, Dylan and Claire. And they, um, ha- there's this magical land of holiday, all right? Um, and holiday is this magical place where everyone's, you know, loving and warm. It's Christmas, right? It's, you know, everyone just kind of gets warm fuzzies around Christmas time. I mean, not everyone, but, you know, you kind of get the idea. And holiday is this magical town that, that everyone wants to go to, but they can only go once a year. And then everyone goes back. But... Dylan and Claire have heard that it's possible to kind of like be there all year round and to, to find this magical land where you actually go there and become a permanent citizen of holiday. And you have this, this special magical feeling all year round, right? They start going and Dylan and Claire, they're obsessed with finding the real holiday and they go on this journey and they kind of meet all these different characters. But one of the things that happens is as they're on this journey, they start learning about this guy called the founder Right? The founder is the one who founded, who created Holiday, this town of Holiday. 
And the more that especially Dylan learns about this guy called the founder and, and how, how powerful he is and how he uses his power to protect the citizens of Holiday, and he's compassionate, and, and, he, and he's done all of these wonderful things for the inhabitants of Holiday, all of a sudden Dylan actually starts becoming less interested with the Holiday itself, more interested finding this guy called the founder. And so as he's going on this journey, he starts asking people, hey, how can I find the founder? This guy seems awesome. I want to meet him. The problem is that you can't find the founder. The founder has to find you. In fact, he asks constantly people, different characters, like, hey, how do I find the founder? And there's this rhyme that gets repeated back to Dylan over and over and over again. And the rhyme is, you don't find the founder, he finds you. He's not just the founder, he's the finder too. And sure enough, in this story, as Dylan is trying to pursue the founder, he realizes that he can't get, he's, he's always out of reach. But what happens is he realizes, as he looks back on his journey, that the founder has been pursuing him the whole way. He's been following him. He's been actually going ahead of him. He's been pursuing him to bring him not only just to this wonderful town of Holiday, but to a relationship with himself. Guys, we look at the Gentiles. They did not pursue God. So how did they find God? He pursued them. What do we learn from case study number one? Salvation is by grace alone. The Gentiles were pursued by God. Guys, I don't know about you, but um, I'm just tired. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's different seasons of life. And I'm just young kids and all that, but I'm just tired right now. Some of you may relate, and you're like, yeah, I'm totally there. Some of you might be, well, I'm not tired. I'm just overwhelmed. There's just a lot going on in life. Or I'm frustrated, or I'm lonely. And how about you? But there's a lot of times in life where um, when I consider my own situation, I'm just kind of discouraged. Um, I'm tired. I don't have the strength to do the things that I need to do. Or there's just too many things to do. I, I don't, or, or maybe it's I don't know what to do. I don't have the wisdom to do all the things that I need to do. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. Uh, I don't have friends. I'm not, I'm not with people like I want to be. I haven't reached the places in life where I want to reach. Looking inward can create despair. What grace does is it forces us to look outward. What grace says is that you don't have the strength to pursue God. You don't have the wisdom to keep his law. You don't have the ability to chase after him So your only hope, the only hope you have is that he is pursuing you, is that he is chasing after you. And that's what we see from the Gentiles. Salvation is by grace alone. Let's look, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that, but let's move on to case study number two, the Israelites. Case study one, salvation is by grace alone. Romans 9, verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. So if the Gentiles pursued, no, excuse me, did not pursue righteousness and yet attained it, the Israelites are the polar opposites. They pursued a law that leads to righteousness. They they wanted righteousness. They pursued righteousness. And they did not receive it. They did not attain it. 
You see, they had a game plan. Israel had a game plan. We need righteousness. They knew that. So in that sense, they actually were, uh, they were a step above the Gentiles. They actually knew that they needed a right standing with God. So they worked really hard to pursue it. They had a game plan. It was called the law. When God formed Israel, I told the story of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? The Israelites come out of Egypt at one point, which they're captive, and they go to this, this mountain, Mount Sinai. God gives Israel a law, Ten Commandments, right? And you know these Ten Commandments, most of you. Worship God alone, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, etc., etc. And, and the idea was, if you keep this law, then you will be with God. If you keep this law, then life will go well for you. That was kind of the message. And so Israel worked really hard at this. They had a game plan, the law. The problem with the game plan is that they couldn't do it. It was a bad game plan. It, it, was, it was a road to get to righteousness, but it was the wrong road. I remember um, when I was in college, so and I were dating before we got married. I, I'm from Winston-Salem originally, and my wife's from Charlotte, and we both met at Chapel Hill, greatest institution, uh, in, in, definitely in the state of North Carolina, Dean. I returned the favor, right? <laughs> um, and we met in Carolina. I remember uh, it was on break one time, and, and I was back in Winston-Salem, and I was spending some time with my family, and then I was going to go see Celia. And I was excited, but, you know, excited about Celia, excited seeing her. And I get in my car, and I, I start taking off. And it's gr- I'm making great time. There's no traffic on the road. Um, I, I'm, I'm making great time. I've got, like, a, a, you know, a, a book on tape in, and I'm just I'm flying. It's going great, right? Get three-quarters of the way there. I realize, whoops, I'm going to Chapel Hill. <laughs> Celia's in Charlotte with her family. I get three-quarters of the way to Chapel Hill, and I realize, what, I have taken the wrong road. My goal was right in my mind, right? I want to go see Celia. I took the wrong road. Because Israel took the wrong road to righteousness. They pursued righteousness by works. The right goal, the wrong road. And this goes back to what we learned about the Gentiles. If you remember that, they pursued a righteousness... Excuse me, they, they didn't pursue righteousness, but they attained it, a righteousness that is by faith. Case study number one tells us that, that salvation is by grace alone. Case study number two paints this picture that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Salvation is through faith alone. It's as if this, as if God takes the road to us, right? He's the one who comes to us because we can't go to him. He has to pursue us. So he comes to us and he teaches us the road to live, the road to be with him. And that's the road of faith. What is faith? Faith is believing and resting in someone that's other than yourself. Faith is resting upon Christ and what he did. Remember, Israel, their problem was that they couldn't keep the law. The law was okay. The law was good. But Israel was bad. And we're the same way. God gives us a law in the Bible. All of these things that we are to do. There's nothing wrong with that law. The problem is with us. We look at that law. We consider the law. If you really take time to meditate on it and analyze yourself, you realize you can't do it. But Christ, right? Let's look outside of ourselves, right? Let's not focus on our works. Let's look outside of ourselves to someone else, to Christ. What did he do? His whole life, he came down and he worshiped God alone. He was perfect, pure in every way. The way he treated others was with love. The way he loved God was pure, was wholehearted. 
He did all of these things that you and I can't do. That's faith, is saying, I have to rest on what he did outside of myself. I can't trust in my own works. This past weekend, we went on a leader's retreat, and uh, at night, uh, every time we go on a leader's retreat, uh, Dean has us for about 45 minutes just kind of go off and, and pray by ourselves and, and you know, read scripture. And um, I went out, we were at this lake house, and there was this dock that kind of had this, these stairs that went up to the top of the dock, and, um, and, and you know, was, I had a great view of the lake, and so I put on my coat, I went outside, and I walked, and now it's pitch black dark, but I can see kind of this this outline of this dock. I'd never been there before. But I start walking up the stairs to the dock. I'm excited. I want to spend 45 minutes out there, like beautiful, kind of, you know, it's crisp air, and it's, it's beautiful, uh, you know, beautiful place to be. I walk up there, I walk on top, and I get onto the roof, and all of a sudden I'm like, well, I'm not sure about this. I step, and it's not solid. It's like kind of springy, you know. It's like this kind of, it's, it's, it's I can tell I'm, I'm walking on plywood, you know, and I'm really, because I can't see it. I can't analyze it. Is this safe? So I'm, I'm, I'm walking, and I, you know, probably a smart man would have just turned around and said, this is not worth it. But I'm not a smart man. I kept going. I was like, I, I really, I, you know, I want to be here. This is beautiful. This is my spot. You know, this is my spot. And I'm protective of it. I want it to be mine. And so I'm walking. And I'm truthfully, I'm like, I don't, I mean, I might fall through. I might be in the lake. And this is cold. And it's dark. And um, so I'm looking around. And I, I can't see the ground. But, but what I do see is this faint outline of, of this railing. All right. So I'm like, all right, well, let's check this out. So I walk over to the railing, and I, you know, I kind of do the jiggle test, right? It's, you know, I shake it, and it doesn't move, you know? And I kind of get, I look real close, and it's, it's new wood, all right? What I'm walking on is not new. It is old. It's creaking. It's bouncing. I'm scared, but I, I, the railing, I'm like, okay. So I kind of do this calculated move. It's like, if I fall through, can I hold on to the railing? I'm assuming I can. So I walk along the railing out to the, the edge of the dock. The whole time, I'm like, you know, going from, you know, place. I mean, literally, this is what I was doing. And I spent 45 minutes praying like this. <laughs> At that point, so, like, where was my trust in? My trust is not in what I'm walking. That's clear. What I'm walking can't support my weight. I get that. But I am death grip on this railing, knowing that I might fall through any minute, but as long as I'm holding on to this railing, this thing outside of myself that I can rely upon, I'm good. Faith. Recognizing that we must cling to something outside of ourselves to hold us up. We cannot be saved by works. That was Israel's mistake, and they did not attain righteousness. We look for a righteousness that is by grace, through faith. Faith, resting on the work of Christ for you. What he did, his perfection for you, and holding on to that with a death grip, knowing that the only reason you can pray to God, the only reason you can come to God, the only reason you can worship God is because of what he did for you. Every word that you pray to God is only on the basis of Christ's work for you, his finished work. Again, we're at this place where if you're tired, if you're exhausted, if you're confused, if you're at a place in life where you're just like, I need help. The message here, God is calling us, look outside of yourself. Grace teaches us that God pursues us. Faith teaches us that God has given us the gift of Christ, and we rest in him alone. Case study number one, case study number two, case study number three. Let's pick up uh, 932b, it's kind of the, the end of 32. They, the Israelites, have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling 
and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the Israelites took the wrong road, right? They, took, they were pursuing righteousness, but they took the wrong road, the road of works rather than the road of faith. And because of that, they stumbled over this stumbling stone. This language, this quotation comes from two places in Isaiah. Isaiah 8, chapter 8, and, and, and verse, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapters 8 and Isaiah chapters 28. You can go kind of figure out where it is in there. I don't feel like giving you the verses too. So there's two chapters, and basically what Paul does is he takes this, these quotes and he blends it together to give us a picture of Christ. And throughout the New Testament, various times, Mark and Matthew and Peter would take these quotations and they'd put them together and they would refer to Christ as the stumbling stone, as the rock of offense. So what does this mean, he's a stumbling stone, he's a rock of offense? Well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's kind of say the obvious. It's a negative thing, right? I mean, if, if you're walking along the road, you stumble and you, your toe hits a rock and you fall down. I'm not like singing praises, right? I'm, I'm like mad, I'm angry, I'm hurt. So this is a negative thing, and yet it's Christ. So you get, he's kind of, this is weird, right? Christ is our Savior. He's, he is the, the perfect one. He's compassionate, he's loving. He's a stumbling stone. He's a rock of offense, The reason is because Israel, in taking the wrong road, was relying upon their own works. And, and you see this in Jesus' life, as he would encounter the Israelites, as he would encounter the Jews, they were offended at the notion that they weren't righteous enough. Think about the Pharisees. I mean, they, they were going at it with Jesus all the time, and the, and the problem was Jesus was contending that they're not righteous enough. And, and by the way, even your righteousness is hypocritical because you're saying these things and not doing it. And even if you are doing these external things, O oh Pharisees, internally you're like a tomb. That was offensive. That was a stumbling block to these Israels, Israelites who had thought mistakenly that they could keep the law on their own, that they could attain salvation on their own. Stumbling block, a rock of offense. But here's the catch, right? I mean, think about this. It, it, the verse reads this. The Israelites have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, I'm laying a stone, uh, it's laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that? I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever hits it will get hurt, right? Or whoever stumbles over it will fall on a face, right? No, it doesn't say that. Whoever believes in him, it continues, will not be put to shame. There's this strong negative. Christ is this rock of offense. He's the stone of stumbling. And yet there's this weird positive on the end. A lot of times in Scripture, Christ is referred to as a rock. Many of the times, it's a wonderful image. Christ is my rock. So, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but in uh, the call to worship that Trent read to us, Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Fortress, a rock, a solid place where we can cling, we can go and hide. A refuge for us. So the question, which, which is it? Is, is Christ to you a stone of stumbling because you are so focused on yourself and earning your salvation, that Christ is offensive to you, 
Because the idea that you're not good enough makes you stumble. Or does knowing that you're not good enough, taking that weight off of your shoulders and running to Christ, is he a refuge for you? Because you need a Savior. Think about a river, right? If you're in a river, if there's a strong current, a rock is kind of a double-edged sword. A rock can be the greatest thing or the worst thing. A rock can be, I mean, imagine you're like floundering in the river, right? So let's, let's kick this analogy up a notch. You're floundering in the river. You're, you're, you're mind drowned, right? There's this river that's taking you along. What is a rock to you? Well, a rock is either life or it's death. If you can find a rock that you can grab onto and you're committed to finding a rock to grab onto, to hold yourself, to pull yourself out of the river, that is life. Conversely, on the other hand, if, if you are committed yourself to figuring out how you can swim your way out of this and you hit a rock, that's going to be your death. So what is Christ to you? Is he a refuge? Is he not only a refuge for salvation where you, re- you recognize that you must rest in him alone or in your everyday life? Is Christ a refuge for you when life gets hard, when you are in pain, when you are frustrated, when things don't go the way that you want them to go? What, what do you run to? Entertainment, distraction, pleasure, TV, food, alcohol. Or Christ says, run to me. I'm your refuge. I'm your protection. I am your fortress. I'm your deliverer. I'm your shield. For salvation, yes, in the grand scheme and in salvation in the small moments to life. What are you bringing today? What is on your mind? What is on your heart? Where do you need to run to Christ, not other things? What do you need to run to Christ for refuge? Salvation, right? The biggest deal in our lives. We've looked at three case studies. Salvation, the topic of salvation, not only dictates eternal destiny, because the Bible is very clear about our, the importance of being right with God. God created us to worship him, yet we are sinners. We have rebelled against God. We've gone our own way. And left to our own devices, we will walk our way to hell. But God's compassionate. He doesn't let us just wander away. He comes after us and chases us and pulls us into a relationship with him, giving us a new heart, a new ability to love him. Salvation makes all the difference in your life, not only for your eternal destiny, but day-to-day walk. Salvation, where blessings are poured out on you, where even when things are difficult and life is hard, in some ways life is more difficult as a Christian, and yet there is this inner peace that is to be found in Christ. There's this inner rest. There's this inner security, this inner love. That's what's offered to you in salvation. Salvation. Case study number one, it's by grace alone. Case study number two, it's through faith alone. Case study number three, it's in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your salvation that you've given to us, that we need Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Give us a desire, first and foremost, for your salvation. For those of us who are just worried about our own uh, day-to-day lives, the small things in life, what's for for lunch? What's what's happening in my job? What's happening in, in, in my relationships? Not that those are unimportant, but give us a hunger for something more important. 
for a right relationship with you with, for righteousness through faith. God, not only do give us this righteousness, we pray, but also uh, give us the ability to, to daily rest upon you, rest not upon ourselves, to look to you, not ourselves, as you pursue us as a devoted lover and God, as you provide the perfect gift of Christ's righteousness so that we can rest on him through faith. And God, I thank you that you've given us a rock because life feels very unsteady. I pray that through your spirit, you would challenge us to cling to Christ more. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song of praise to the rock of refuge. the Lamb who was slain, and holy, holy is He, and sing a new song to Him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and holy, holy is He. We sing a new song to Him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all 